This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Also, make sure to check out and subscribe to our YouTube original channel, UCTV Prime, available only on YouTube at youtube.com slash UCTV Prime. This UCTV podcast is sponsored in part by Audible.com, your destination for the widest selection of digital audiobooks available, including many by guests you've heard here on UCTV. Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com slash UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com slash UCTV. And thanks. Uh, Good afternoon. Uh, I'm a bit humbled by all of that. Um, I am very honored... Uh, to have been chosen to give this lecture. And I would like to thank uh, Associate Dean uh, Ren Sun from the School of Medicine uh, and Dean Linda Rosenstock from the School of Public Health, but most especially my close colleague uh, and publicity manager, Zhoufeng Zhang, uh, for nominating me uh, for this uh, honor. And I will try to make uh, this lecture uh, as interesting as possible. Now, uh, as you've heard, uh, this is the first time uh, that uh, someone from public health has been uh, nominated. It's also the first time uh, that somebody from epidemiology uh, has uh, been uh, so honored. Uh, And so, realizing that I had a captive audience I decided to tell you, uh, first, what is public health? (laughs) So public health uh, is the science and art of preventing disease, prolonging life, and promoting health through the organized efforts of society. Uh, Our own Dean Breslow uh, defined it as the process of mobilizing local, state, provincial, national and international resources to assure the conditions in which all people can be healthy. Uh, Professor uh, Jonathan Fielding, after whom the School of Public Health is named, uh, pointed out that the three major tasks of public health are to protect the health of the public, to prevent disease and factors which compromise the public's health and function, and to promote uh, the health of the public. Uh, An illustrious graduate uh, of the School of Public Health, David Satcher, who subsequently became the Surgeon General of the United States, uh, stated that the fundamental maxim of public health is that the health of the individual is best ensured by maintaining and improving the health of the community. Then uh, Deedles came along uh, and defined the goal of public health as the biologic, physical, and mental well-being of all members of the global society, regardless of ethnicity, religion, gender, sexual orientation, country, or even political views. (laughs) 
So uh, now I'd like to turn uh, to a brief discussion uh, of uh, what is epidemiology. Uh, I often tell my students that it actually comes from the Greek, uh, epidemos and logos, which is uh, logos is the study, uh, epi is upon, and uh, demos is people. But uh, one of my students uh, pointed out to me that demos is not as close to demiology as demios is, uh, which of course means executioner. Um, <laughs> epidemiology is a strategy for the study of factors relating to the etiology, prevention, and control of disease to promote health and to efficiently allocate efforts and resources for health promotion, maintenance, and medical care in human populations. Now, uh, I like to tell my students uh, that uh, epidemiology is actually a religion. Uh, and uh, the uh, Christian religion, uh, which is my background, uh, has uh, one holy trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, but epidemiology tries to go that one better. So we have two holy trinities of epidemiology. Uh, and the first is the idea that health is a state of equilibrium uh, between the agent, the host, which is usually the human, uh, and the environment. Uh, and if you mess with any one of that trinity, uh, disease will result. Now the second uh, holy trinity uh, is the trinity that we use to describe uh, the relationship between agent, host, and environment. Uh, and that's time, place, uh, and uh, person. Uh, now, uh, after that brief uh, description, I'd like to uh, talk to you about the road to resistance. Um, I, I will uh, start... Uh, by telling you a little bit about the multicenter AIDS cohort uh, from which my remarks have been drawn. Uh, uh, the Vice Ch uh, Chancellor has given you some description of, of it, but uh, let me uh, uh, continue. Uh, we started uh, the cohort studies uh, at UCLA in 1981, uh, at which time uh, Professor John Fahey very generously allocated to me $3,000 and agreed to run the flow cytology uh, for me uh, on a study of students at UCLA. Uh, the organization was known as the Gay and Lesbian Association, or GALA. Uh, in 1983, uh, the National Institutes of Health decided to provide funding for research uh, on HIV uh, and established uh, uh, funding uh, that was given to uh, four different institutions, Johns Hopkins, Northwestern, Pittsburgh, and UCLA. Uh, so I called up the uh, uh, PIs, principal investigators, at the other institutions and said, hey, why don't we collaborate? Uh, because I think together we can do more uh, than if we try to do something uh, individually. So uh, we joined forces uh, and recruited 5,622 men who have sex with men. Uh, at the uh, baseline uh, in 1983-84, 39% of the men, unfortunately, had already been uh, infected. 
uh, and subsequently uh, over 600 of them uh, have seroconverted uh, and be, uh, become infected. Uh, we follow these men uh, every six months uh, by asking them a series of exceedingly embarrassing questions uh, and also uh, collect uh, biologic specimens. Uh, I once had one of the participants present to my students uh, as uh, to what it felt like to be a participant in this study. And at the conclusion of his remarks, uh, one of the students uh, raised her hand and said, what do you find is the most difficult part uh, of participating uh, in the multicenter AIDS cohort? And he responded, well, you know, they asked me what I did, with whom I did it, how I did it, how many times I did it, and the interviewer looks like my grandmother. Uh, one of the uh, great things that uh, we did, and it's always uh, wonderful to be able to look back and realize that you did something right at the beginning. And what, that, what we did right was we uh, established both national and lo local repositories of biologic specimens. At each of the six uh, month visits, uh, we took an extensive questionnaire uh, on uh, various uh, uh, medical history, health services, behavior, medications, and so forth, uh, and we took uh, specimens. Uh, we were very fortunate uh, that uh, at the very beginning, uh, we set up uh, laboratories uh, at each of the centers, and this has been one of the great strengths of the MAX, uh, and it was uh, Professor John Fahey uh, who saw to it uh, that the laboratory uh, at UCLA was the best. Now, uh, this schematic drawing I'll just run through very, very quickly. It's to show you the cohort. At the beginning, we had some people who were already infected, some who were not. Uh, some of the ones who were not infected became infected. Now, this group was particularly interesting uh, because uh, we had uh, the entire natural history from before they were infected to the point where they became infected on through the entire course uh, of disease. And so this was a particularly unique uh, population. Uh, now, as the Vice Chancellor has said, uh, we have, uh, as a group, published uh, somewhat over 11,000 uh, publications in various um, medical journals. Uh, we have expanded the cohort and now have close to 7,000 participants and almost 90,000 person years of follow-up, 12,000 different variables, and over one and a half million different biologic specimens. Uh, so uh, this is indeed a unique resource. Now, uh, it became apparent uh, after we had gotten the study going uh, for some time that there were some groups within the cohort who were particularly interesting. Uh, there are the long-term survivors who were infected. Uh, and they knew how to cope with the virus, so we needed to learn from them how to do it. Uh, we uh, realized that there were people who had a very severely compromised immune system, but they continued to survive. 
Uh, and we looked intensively at that group here at UCLA. Uh, as I commented, we look at the individuals who seroconverted because we knew what their uh, immunologic condition was before infection, during infection, uh, and through the entire course of disease. But of particular risk uh, interest to me was the high-risk seronegatives. Uh, they knew how not to get infected. That's something we needed to know. Uh, and so my talk today will concentrate uh, on that group. Uh, and uh, we needed to know uh, what uh, was the response uh, to treatment of the individuals who were infected. Uh, and we realized uh, with the help of uh, Professor Rita Efros uh, here at UCLA, uh, that aging was occurring faster uh, in the uh, AIDS-affected population despite uh, treatment, uh, and so we have focused on that group. Now, um, in 1985, it became possible to isolate the virus. Uh, and so the Max decided that we would get involved uh, in the process of uh, trying to isolate the virus. Uh, the other three centers uh, decided they would try to isolate the virus uh, from the individuals who were known to be infected, antibody positive. However, my feeling was that uh, that really wasn't useful because we already knew that they were infected. What we really wanted to know was what was happening uh, to the men and their immune system as they became infected. So uh, we decided that we would not make isolation uh, attempts from infected men, but from men who we expected to become infected. So we uh, picked a population of men who had exceedingly many uh, partners uh, and thus were very likely uh, to be exposed to HIV while we had them under observation. And indeed, uh, we found 31 men who were uh, antibody negative and isolation positive. That is to say, the usual test said they were not infected, but we isolated virus. Now, this is a very disturbing finding. And so, uh, my colleagues and I were confronted uh, with a difficult decision because uh, the antibody test was the test that was used to protect the blood supply. Thus, if people were infected, but they were test negative, that meant testing the blood supply might not protect uh, the individuals from getting a contaminated unit of blood. So I uh, conferred with my colleagues uh, and we decided uh, that we would need a second independent uh, indicator uh, of the fact that these men uh, were indeed infected. Uh, in the meantime, uh, Professor Ranke uh, from uh, Finland published a paper in which he studied 14 antibody negative uh, partners uh, of uh, individuals who were infected. Uh, and he found that uh, five of the 14 responded to uh, the uh, 
one of the proteins of uh, the virus, suggesting that some epitopes of the HIV envelope are immunogenic, that is, capable of eliciting an immune response, and may reflect prior exposure to HIV. Uh, we then uh, continued uh, our studies. Uh, Dr. Imagawa was uh, the virologist uh, with whom I worked, uh, an absolutely meticulous laboratorian uh, and uh, one of the finest men that I've had the honor uh, to work with. Uh, and so uh, we uh, tried to isolate from 133 men. Uh, 31 of them uh, were uh, antibody negative, uh, but we isolated virus from them. Uh, four of them subsequently seroconverted, uh, but the other 27 did not. Uh, by that time, a new test of the virus had developed, a polymerase chain reaction, or PCR. And so we took specimens uh, from these men that had never been uh, in Dr. Imagawa's laboratory uh, and sent them to the uh, scientist who had invented PCR and asked him to run the specimens Blindly, we also gave him some uh, that had from whom we had not made isolations, and he confirmed those uh, uh, isolations and confirmed that they were infected. So now we're confronted uh, with a very serious uh, dilemma. Uh, now uh, I would like to point out that we uh, we looked very hard at what circumstances surrounded uh, the uh, procedures for isolation. Uh, the usual procedure uh, was to take cells from uh, the individual uh, that we wanted to test and mix them uh, with cells that had been activated to make them susceptible to HIV infection. However, uh, Dr. Imagawa uh, decided uh, that it probably would be more uh, efficient to, in fact, activate uh, the cells from the uh, person being tested as well. And that probably was absolutely key uh, in uh, affording us the opportunity uh, to make the isolations. Uh, so uh, we realized that the cells needed to be activated to successfully complete the process uh, of infection. Now, um, the, we were confronted with a very serious uh, ethical problem. Uh, here we have evidence uh, that some people uh, are infected with the virus, but the test is negative. Now, we also realized that if we published this paper, we were going to create tremendous anxiety uh, in uh, the public at large uh, and in the scientific community. So the ethical dilemma became, do we publish this finding uh, and confront the anxiety, or uh, do we not publish? Uh, and in that case, this information would not be available to the scientific community. 
I made the decision uh, that uh, the scientific community, in fact, had to know uh, that there was a possibility that people who were test negative uh, were uh, harboring virus. So we published. Uh, and that's the paper there is. The result was that the Centers for Disease Control suddenly got hundreds of calls saying, is the blood supply safe? And so they realized that they had to do something to challenge the paper. Now the appropriate place to do that is in the New England Journal, which is where we published the paper. And I assure you we got many letters from scientists questioning what we did, and that is absolutely appropriate. However, I discovered later that the Centers for Disease Control called up uh, my classmate, Lawrence Altman, although I didn't realize at the time he was my classmate, and basically said to him, we've got to discredit Deedles. Uh, there are too many uh, bad outcomes of this paper, uh, and so uh, they made it clear that he was going to have trouble getting more scoops from CDC if he didn't uh, uh, deep-six our article. So he called me and talked to me for an hour, uh, and then he wrote this article. Uh, absolutely none of what I said was quoted in the article. The article uh, indicated that we were unethical and incompetent, and that Dr. Imagawa uh, was a hack. Dr. Imagawa had a heart attack and died two days after this paper. I was so mad that I wrote a letter to Altman, and I said, you bastard, you're a killer. Uh, I still feel very strongly about that, as you can tell. Now, um, instead of folding up our tent uh, and disappearing, uh, we persisted. Uh, and uh, we did uh, a study uh, of uh, what happened uh, after we made the initial uh, isolations. And what we found uh, was in 1986, it became apparent uh, how HIV was being transmitted uh, in the uh, MSM population. And so uh, the men, gay men, dramatically changed their behavior. Uh, and what we found was of the uh, 27, uh, 26 men uh, from whom we'd isolated virus, uh, in 1985-86 changed their behavior. Uh, and so they no longer had uh, exposure to HIV. We continued to make isolation attempts from them, but were not able to make any. On the other hand, uh, one uh, of the 27 men continued his high-risk activities, and we continued to make further isolations from him. So we realized uh, that the men were transiently infected, but apparently were able to clear HIV from their bodies. Now that is an exciting hypothesis. 
because if these men can do that, uh, we have to know how they do it. If we can learn how they do it, then perhaps we can confer that mechanism that they have naturally on individuals who don't have it naturally and provide those individuals uh, with uh, protection from infection. Okay. Now, uh, I subsequently uh, did a study uh, with my colleagues, uh, particularly with uh, Professor Janice Georgie, uh, a brilliant immunologist uh, with whom I spent many an hour screaming at each other uh, over science. Uh, it was exceedingly exciting. Uh, and uh, Janice was just a unique person. Unfortunately, uh, she died uh, in her early 50s, but I, I want to acknowledge that she played a very significant role uh, in, in this study. Uh, we, uh, after the article, uh, in the New York Times, we were not able to publish any further studies on these 27 men. Uh, we had been effectively blackballed. Uh, and so uh, I tried another little trick. Uh, I uh, defined uh, 250 of the men from the uh, Max who continued to have many, many uh, partners uh, and uh, included as a control group uh, MSM, uh, who had very few partners but were uh, uh, seronegative. I couldn't take a historical control because the assays that we were doing required fresh uh, cells. And what we found was that the men who were resistant to HIV infection uh, had increased levels of neutrophils and of CD8 cells. Uh, and that's particularly interesting because the CD8 cells are the principal cell of the immune system uh, that responds to HIV. And so our interpretation was that CD8 cells may modulate outcome uh, of HIV uh, exposure. Uh, very shortly thereafter, uh, Professor uh, Ivan Bryson uh, of UCLA as well uh, did a study uh, on infants uh, and uh, she did uh, viral cultures uh, on infants who were antibody uh, positive and uh, found uh, that uh, they, some of them were infected uh, 19 days after birth uh, but by 12 months had, in fact, cleared uh, their virus. Uh, so the interpretation was uh, that these infants had also successfully cleared HIV uh, and uh, reinforced uh, the findings that we had. Uh, I then joined uh, forces uh, with uh, some uh, immunologists uh, from the, excuse me, geneticists uh, from uh, the National Cancer Institute, uh, specifically Dean Mann uh, and uh, Mary Carrington uh, and a number of my students. Uh, and uh, we did genetic and immunologic studies of these resistant uh, men. Uh, and uh, we compared uh, 13 of the resistant men uh, with 27 seroconverters. Uh, and what we, uh, the tw but we took the specimens from the seroconverters prior to the time that they became infected. Uh, 
So we considered they, them to be particularly vulnerable to HIV. Uh, and we found uh, that the median percentage uh, of activated CD8 cells uh, was higher in the resistant men. Uh, we also uh, looked at these men and did genetic studies uh, and we found significantly higher levels uh, of uh, one HLA uh, subtype and of the TAP uh, 1.4 and 2.3 genes. So our interpretation uh, was the genetic factors uh, which are involved uh, in the transport uh, of viral particles or uh, subunits uh, to cells are associated with resistance to infection. So let me uh, just tell you what that is all about for those of you who are not immunologists. Uh, the virus comes along uh, and it enters uh, a particular type uh, of uh, cell uh, that belongs to what we call the innate immune system. Uh, and uh, within that cell, uh, the virus is broken down uh, into peptides uh, or epitopes, uh, which are then taken to the surface of the cell, uh, and they're displayed on the surface of the cell. And what they do is that they say uh, to the CD8 cells, hey, beautiful, come over here, I got something for you. Uh, and uh, what they have for them is a signal that says, uh, if you see uh, any cells uh, with this particular epitope on them, kill them. Uh, and so uh, we hypothesized uh, in 1995 uh, that HIV-resistant MSM have genetically mediated more efficient uh, MHC transport uh, and presentation of the HIV epitopes resulting in sufficient levels of CD8 uh, cytotoxic cells to clear uh, low levels of HIV-infected uh, cells. Uh, and the publication uh, of uh, that paper uh, and the hypothesis uh, was greeted with uh, overwhelming uh, yawns. <laughs> However, uh, science marched uh, on despite uh, my uh, persisting anonymity. Uh, and uh, John Brown, uh, who's also a professor here at UCLA, uh, and I did a study uh, in which we looked at the low-risk uh, people who'd converted uh, the uh, low-risk seronegatives and the high-risk seronegatives. Negative, that should be seronegatives. I'm sorry, in 16 uh, resistant uh, individuals. And uh, uh, Dr. Brown found higher levels uh, of uh, an, uh, super antigen uh, binding serum antibodies to a component of the virus, GP120, uh, which again uh, said that these individuals had obviously had previous exposure uh, to HIV uh, and uh, they stimulated uh, antibodies which were not the usual uh, antibodies. Then uh, we joined uh, with other uh, investigators uh, and had uh, a particularly significant uh, finding. Uh, what, uh, but let me explain, uh, first of all, uh, this is the virus, 
And the virus has uh, sticking out from its surface uh, a glycoprotein uh, 120 and a 41. Uh, and the glycoprotein uh, 120 attaches to receptors on the target cell, which is a CD4 cell. Uh, and uh, one receptor is a CD4 receptor, and the other receptor is a CCR5 receptor. These receptors uh, are uh, used by uh, the immune system, uh, which has various types of cells which need to communicate with each other, and they communicate with each other by releasing a chemical, uh, which is then picked up by these receptors. But the virus, GP120, is able to mimic those. And that's the way that they attach to the target uh, cell. Uh, now, uh, the, our, our colleagues uh, took the men that we defined as uh, resistant men and uh, uh, seropositives uh, and looked uh, at the presence uh, or looked for the presence uh, of the CCR5 uh, receptor. And what they found uh, was that fewer than 5% uh, uh, of the resistant men, but 5% of the resistant men, in fact, were lacking that CCR5 receptor. And so uh, that meant the virus could not attach to the cell and infect uh, the target cell of the host. So the... Uh, uh, he also tried to find uh, homozygous or uh, individuals who were lacking the CCR5 among people who were infected and found none. So uh, the interpretation was that 100% of individuals who lack the CCR5 uh, receptor uh, are not infected, that uh, the absence of the CCR5 uh, receptor actually protects the individual. Now, uh, about this time, uh, uh, Frank Plummer and one of the uh, graduates of our program in epidemiology uh, did a study uh, of uh, sex workers uh, in uh, the Pumwami district uh, of uh, Nairobi. Uh, uh, and they looked uh, at 25 uh, new sex workers uh, and 32 uh, sex workers who were not, uh, had no antibody uh, and low-risk housewives. And what they found was that over half of the resistant sex workers had uh, specific uh, CD8 responses uh, to the virus, uh, as we had observed earlier. Um, okay, and uh, 20% of the uh, sex workers uh, who had only been working for a matter of months uh, had these uh, specific CD8 responses, and none of the housewives did. Uh, the interpretation was the resistant CSWs had CTL, CD8 cells that cleared HIV. Uh, Dr. Roland Jones uh, from uh, the United Kingdom uh, did uh, another uh, study uh, of sex workers in which he looked at uh, 21 uh, apparently HIV-resistant sex workers and compared them to lab workers at Oxford University who had the same genetic distribution uh, of uh, alleles uh, for the MHC. And what she found 
was that uh, a little under half uh, of the CSWs that were resistant had uh, CD8 cells uh, that responded uh, to the HIV uh, peptides, uh, but uh, uh, and uh, found that in seven of ten uh, to specific subtypes of the HIV. But none of the lab workers uh, had those uh, CTL or CD8 cell responses. The interpretation, again, was that the resistant sex workers had broadly reactive, effective CTL, CD8 cells, uh, uh, but mainly to the conserved regions of HIV. Now, the study was also uh, done in 2002 uh, of 18 resistant uh, injection drug users. So now we've moved into a different population uh, that is infected not uh, through sex, but through injection drug use. Uh, And uh, they basically found the same thing. 12 of the 18 resistant uh, uh, IDUs had... Uh, MHC that stimulated uh, the more effective uh, CD8 uh, response, uh, and that was not found in any of the seroconverters. So the resistance, uh, the interpretation was that resistant men uh, have uh, specific responses uh, to HIV uh, that are stimulated uh, by uh, the process of presenting the antigens uh, in the antigen presenting process that I described earlier. Now, uh, studies uh, then were done uh, subsequently in 2011 uh, and uh, identified a subset uh, of the innate immune system, uh, which suggested uh, that uh, the these subset of cells, the KIR3DL1 NK cells, natural killer cells, uh, which had a specific HLA subtype, uh, were more able to more efficiently eliminate HIV. So the interpretation was a, particularly, a particular genetically determined subset uh, of these cells uh, eliminate uh, HIV through their interaction with the CD8 cells. Uh, And a subsequent study, uh, I saw another study, uh, found uh, the same thing. Now, you'll notice that uh, it says H-E-S-N. I prefer to to refer to these men as resistant or these individuals as resistant. Uh, But uh, the uh, uh, jargon adopted by the National Institutes of Health is uh, highly exposed seronegatives. And that's the term that is now used, and you'll see it. Uh, Now, uh, another investigator also looked at uh, one of the major antigen-presenting cells uh, and noted that uh, in the resistant men, um, there was greater proliferation of these cells and maturation, uh, and uh, that they responded more vigorously to HIV, uh, thus presumably uh, providing uh, more a signal to the CD8 cells to go find though the cells with those epitopes and to kill them. Um, okay, I think this is a little bit too uh, technical. Um, so uh, just earlier this year, uh, Professor Gardiali uh, did a study uh, which uh, suggested that the inter- interaction uh, of these innate 
immune cells, the NK cells, and the dendritic cells, uh, which are the antigen-presenting cells I described earlier, uh, produce more of a cytokine that is involved uh, in stimulating uh, the CD8 uh, cells. Uh, okay, this is, says uh, basically the same thing. So uh, there have been a number of studies uh, that have identified uh, individuals who are resistant uh, to infection. Uh, beginning with the study that my colleagues and I did uh, among MSM uh, back in 1985-86, uh, uh, followed uh, by uh, the observations we made in 1989, uh, and then the observations uh, that, uh, in fact, some commercial sex workers did not become infected despite repeated infection to uh, HIV. Uh, and this was uh, also confirmed in health workers uh, and in injection drug users uh, and in hemophiliacs. So uh, the major uh, groups uh, which were infected through different routes all demonstrated uh, this resistance. So in conclusion, uh, what, what do we know? Uh, we know that uh, there are factors that are associated with resistance to infection. Uh, I believe uh, that there are probably multiple factors uh, that confer resistance uh, to uh, individuals that protects them from HIV infection. One of them uh, we know for sure uh, is the absence of the CCR5 receptor so that the virus cannot attach uh, to the target cell. Uh, we know that there is more vigorous dendritic cell proliferation and maturation. Uh, and the dendritic cell are the cells uh, that uh, present uh, these epitopes of the HIV on the surface uh, and say to the CD8 cells, come on, honey, I've got something special for you. Um, uh, and um, there are probably uh, other uh, mechanisms uh, as, uh, as well. Um, so um, you may wonder at the title uh, of this uh, paper. Um, and... Uh, it's interesting that uh, now in 2012, uh, there is universal acceptance that some individuals uh, are uh, resist uh, resistant to HIV infection, and that in fact, uh, the uh, antigen-presenting cells uh, are uh, in fact key uh, in this uh, as one mechanism of infection uh, and work through uh, stimulating uh, the CD8 cells uh, so that they can eliminate uh, low doses uh, of HIV. Remarkably similar to the hypothesis that was offered in 1992. Uh, I think this is important because we have been tweaking the virus uh, since 1985, uh, so that's uh, uh, well over 20 years, uh, and we have not come up with an effective vaccine using the traditional mechanisms uh, of developing a vaccine. Uh, therefore, 
I think we need to learn from these resistant individuals how they protect themselves from infection so that we can confer that protection uh, on individuals who do not naturally have uh, that mechanism uh, to uh, protect them from HIV infection. So there's a moral. The moral is hang in and have smart friends. Uh, And I'm a stubborn cuss Uh, who has had the good fortune to have many, many smart friends. But there are a number of them uh, that I would like uh, to particularly thank. First of all, uh, Professor Michael Gottlieb. Uh, AIDS is a UCLA disease. Uh, Professor Gottlieb uh, was the first individual to recognize uh, that uh, AIDS was a unique syndrome Uh, and represented uh, a new disease that had never been reported before. Uh, And uh, I was uh, very excited about his publication. Uh, Just about the time it was published, he called me up and said, Roger, would you like to study this? Uh, And I said, you bet I would. Uh, I'd like to uh, thank John Fahey, uh, the... Uh, Los Angeles Max would never have gotten started uh, if John had not given me uh, $3,000 and uh, lab support uh, and if he had not established the basic laboratory procedures and quality control uh, procedures that have become standard uh, in the Max. I, of course, would like to thank David Imagawa, Uh, without whom uh, none of this would have been possible, Uh, as is true uh, for Janice Georgie. Barbara Vischer uh, worked with me from the very beginning, Uh, and uh, Barbara was very useful because when I presented my harebrained theories, uh, Barbara was the first one to attack them. Uh, And if I could survive her attacks... Uh, then I felt a great deal more confidence. Uh, Otenio Martinez-Mata has been a valued colleague and his uh, immunologic expertise, but even more, his sound judgment uh, and counsel uh, have been very deeply uh, appreciated. Uh, I'd also like to uh, thank uh, Mimi uh, Deedles, Uh, who for over 49 years uh, has uh, provided me uh, with art, beauty, uh, and color-coordinated attire. (laughs) Uh, And uh, it... uh, Most of all, I would like to thank the men uh, and the staff of the MAX. The men of the MAX come in every six months, and every six months we ask them all these questions about what they do. We are reminding them how vulnerable they are, and we are reminding the ones who continue to engage uh, in high-risk activities that they shouldn't be doing it but they do it. Uh, And yet, these men come in time after time. 
we test them to see if they're losing their ability to think. That's one of the outcomes of uh, HIV infection. Uh, And we give them tests every time they come in. They can tell when they're beginning to fail those tests, and yet they come in again and again and again. Uh, So it is impossible for me to uh, overemphasize how important uh, the contribution uh, of these men have been. And I'd like to thank uh, my staff. My staff are extraordinary. Some of them have been with me for 25 or more years. Almost all of them have been with me for at least 10 years. Uh, And it's not easy uh, working on the Max because when you see these men again and again over the course of 25 or 30 years, you form friendships with them. And you have to watch these guys do things that are going to cause them to get infected. Uh, And until 1995, you had to watch these men get infected and die a horrible death. Uh, And it takes uh, unbelievable courage Uh, for the staff uh, to continue to work uh, under those conditions. And uh, they have been just uh, an extraordinary group uh, to work with. Uh, And one of the most rewarding uh, things uh, about uh, these last uh, 30 years. And finally, uh, I would like to thank UCLA, uh, which has afforded me Uh, the opportunity uh, to do this research and research in many other areas uh, and has provided me with the great benefit of having access to leaders uh, in the other scientific fields, uh, including uh, immunology, virology, uh, behavioral sciences, etc., all of which were essential uh, to the sense uh, to the success uh, of the multicenter uh, AIDS cohort. So uh, thank you very much uh, for this opportunity, uh, and thank you uh, for your patience uh, in listening to me rant on. Thank you. No, 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 don't don't go away. Come on back. What a great job. I mean, he just told the story of his science and the story of his scientists. Uh, It's really exactly what we would have hoped for. I hope the lights will go up now, though, because we do have some opportunities for questions, and there are so many smart friends in the audience. I'm sure you want to toss them a few softballs here. This is your chance. So... Well, the, are... the reason I have smart friends is because they're going to answer the tough questions. <laughs> right uh, next. Oh, here, right here first, yes. Nathan. Should be some perks of sitting in the second row. <laughs> uh, in the introduction, you uh, talked a little bit about the Fogarty program, which is a training program that brings people from various developing countries to uh, UCLA and getting a master's or a doctoral degree. 
And I believe in the introduction you mentioned about one of the unique aspects of that is that all of these individuals are encouraged to return back home. Now, a lot of people have talked about here in the United States is that when we have a science gap, engineering gap, and so forth, we ought to get people from other countries who we've educated here and so forth and not send them back home, but rather use them here and so forth and all that. So this program, in some respects, is kind of unique. Could you at least share with the audience a little bit about the benefits that have come out of encouraging these individuals to go back home in a broad sense, not only for the United States, but for the world itself? Actually, I planted Ralph. (laughs) Ralph has worked uh, over many years with me uh, on, uh, on this program. Uh, and uh, since uh, we got uh, funding for it in 1988, uh, we've probably trained uh, on the order of about 100 uh, PhD uh, and uh, MS students and uh, more postdoctoral students. And, and uh, I told the uh, students that are currently in the program that if they can get their gluteus maxis here, I was going to flunk them all. Uh, they. Uh, we require them to do two things. We, they come here, we pay everything for them. We, uh, they complete their coursework here, uh, and we don't give them any advantage. They have to compete uh, with the American students. We then require them to do their dissertation research back in their home country, because I think doing dissertation research in this country is irrelevant to what's going on uh, back in their home uh, country. Um, And uh, we require them to sign a little thing that says, uh, if you jump ship, you got to pay Dr. Deedles $250,000 because that's what it costs to educate you. Um, These guys go back, uh, and there are a lot of benefits. Uh, A couple of them have become ministers of health. Uh, Most of the directors of the HIV-AIDS programs in uh, Asia, Southeast Asia, are in fact uh, graduates uh, of this program, uh, including uh, the director of the AIDS uh, program uh, at, uh, in Beijing uh, for, for China. Uh, so uh, it's, it's exciting because you, 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 you develop a very personal uh, relationship uh, with your students. Uh, One of my daughter-in-laws once uh, said, I'll get in trouble for this, uh, that I love my students more than I love my son. (laughs) Uh, I was very tempted to say that's because they treat me better, but I didn't. (laughs) But you you establish a very warm relationship uh, with the students. Now, uh, that has benefits for UCLA because UCLA now has this network uh, of researchers all over uh, China, Southeast Asia, and India. Uh, And many of the faculty uh, have uh, established uh, research programs uh, and research projects by uh, making contact uh, with these graduates because they tend to uh, develop uh, a deep affection Uh, for UCLA uh, and a tremendous loyalty. So uh, this 
facilitates uh, the opportunities for faculty and students as well. A number of my American students have uh, contacted some of the graduates and, and developed uh, research projects. So uh, it's, it's been a very exciting program. I think it really has had some very significant uh, benefits, and uh, I can't underestimate uh, how rewarding it is, but I do love my son. <laughs> Okay, we have uh, time for one more uh, question. My son has uh, I think this gentleman right up here son. probably deserves <laughs> a closing remark. You're not allowed to ask your father questions. <laughs> all right. Well, I, I wanted to say I, um, I accept pretty much uh, all the truths that you've uh, talked about today. But I do have contention about one uh, assertion that you've made today. Um, I do believe that Mimi Details has uh, provided you with color-coordinated uh, outfits, but I, having been uh, in your presence almost 45 years, have to question whether you properly combine them. <laughs> years, uh... Uh, I will let you be the judge. <laughs> and I do want to thank you and uh, say that your family's very proud of you today. <laughs> well... What a, wonder, what a wonderful afternoon this was. I uh, appreciated, again, how you share the story of your science, the good, the bad, and the ugly, the sad, the exciting. And we're all more fortunate to be able to have shared in that with you today. But now is time to celebrate. So I'd like to invite all of you to go to the foyer of the Schoenberg and... Um, a little toast for Dr. Deedles. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.